The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 22. Verses 34 to 46. Matthew 22, verses 34 to 46. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. You'll find today's reading on page 777. If you don't own a Bible, please take one home as a gift from Park Church. Again, we're reading from Matthew 22. Verses 34 to, 36, to 46. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Deanna. Good morning. It's good to see you all. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here at Park Church. Uh, We are looking at a passage that's very much about Jesus as king, but also about Jesus' call for humanity to be a people that are marked by love. That idea of being humans that are marked by love is something that resonates deeply with the sort of cultural sensibilities. If I said that human beings, what Jesus calls for his people to be is people that are marked by love, culture could get really excited about that. But the question we have to ask is, this kind of perennial question, what is love? And if you like visceral reaction is to start bobbing your head, it means you grew up in the 90s and, uh, and watched movies where that song, What is Love, would be playing. And so what, what is love? And the reason why it's an important question is because the biblical conception of love and the cultural conception of love aren't always the same thing. And so if I were to kind of ask in a room like this, uh, what do you love? I would get all sorts of different answers. So let's, let's test it out. There's no right or wrong answer here. Maybe weird ones, uh, but no right or wrong ones. What do you love? What do you love? Toss it out. Start us off, extrovert. Um, what's that? Football. Broncos, stand true. We got this. Football. Or, or football. World Cup, let's go. It's happening. It's happening right now. It's happening right now. It's wild. All right, football, sports, Broncos. What else? What do you love? I couldn't hear. Yoga. I love yoga. 
Yoga, it's awesome. What else? What do you love? Family. Family. That answer is going to just get awes across the crowd every time, especially Thanksgiving. Me familia. All right, uh, family. What else? Food. Food. Come on now. Food's great. So here's here's what's interesting. In a in a place like like our, our in our language, when we say love, you can say I love food. Like you could say I love salted Oreo ice cream from Little Man. And you can say that right next to, like, I love my wife. And those words, like, are the same words, but they can't, shouldn't probably mean the same thing. Uh, shouldn't mean the same thing, right? Uh, you can say, you know, Neil asked that question a couple weeks ago about your favorite ice cream place. Little Man is my favorite. It's sentimental. The milk jug, plus there's one by our house on Colfax and Tennyson. And so you have this kind of, uh, this salted Oreo ice cream that I just found out this week that Weldworks, the brewery, now has a salted Oreo, little man salted Oreo ice cream stout. Like, do you love it? I don't know. But you could. You could love it. You could love it. You could love all these things, right? You can love a sports team. You can love a person. Uh, you can love a restaurant. You can love a food. You can love your family. You can love any of these things. When we think about love in our culture, the, the, the semantic range of the word love is very broad. So when Jesus calls us to be a people marked by a love for God, a wholehearted, whole being, love and devotion for God, and calls us to be a people who love other people as ourselves, what does he mean? What does he mean? What does he mean? That's the work we need to do today is really kind of dive into what does Jesus mean in this passage and how does he define it and how does he live it out in his own life? And to do that, we need to kind of set the stage with the context of the passage. So open your Bible. We're in Matthew 22. We're in the last section of Matthew 22. A couple different exchanges here in this last section before we close this off for the year. Matthew 22, starting in verse 34, is where we'll be. In the context, we are in the middle of Holy Week. So Jesus, again, has rode into Jerusalem on a donkey on the Sunday before. We call it Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. This coming Friday, in the week where we're uh, kind of reading this passage, Jesus will be nailed to a cross, crucified as a blasphemer against the God of Israel and as a traitor and insurrectionist in the Roman Empire. He'll be crucified. In that space, there's these series of interactions that Jesus is having with the religious elite, the religious authorities in Jerusalem, in the temple precinct, in the temple area. Jesus is interacting with these, with these religious leaders. And, and the main issue that Jesus is speaking to, to these religious leaders is that the religious leaders in Jerusalem in first century Judaism had failed as a people for generations with warnings after warning after warning from the prophets, prophet after prophet after prophet, the last being John the Baptist and then Jesus himself, the culmination of this prophetic voice, calling people to turn from their self-centered, self-protective approach to lifting and protecting and esteeming themselves higher than others and being a nation that was no longer being who God designed them to be which is calling them to love other people, to put God at the center of their life, to be devoted to him, but also to love other people in particular, the most vulnerable, the most marginalized, and the weakest, in the words of Jesus, the least of these in the community. That's who God had always called his people to be. In this society, Judaism and the, and the modern day Israel and Jesus, the, the, the contemporary Israelites in Jesus' day had so lost sight of that and so hardened their hearts to the prophetic voice that Jesus has come and it gave three parables to indict them about what's coming as they had so forsaken God that in the words of the prophet Hosea that they were no longer even considered God's people. 
That they, were, they went from being my people to not my people. They went from Abraham as our father to in Jesus' words, you are of your father, the devil. They had so rejected the reign of God perpetually, generationally over years that judgment was coming and that's what's happening in this passage. So Jesus proclaims three parables and the, Israel, uh, the leaders in Judaism want nothing of it and so they're trying to publicly discredit Jesus. And so they send a group of Pharisees and Herodians to ask Jesus a question about taxes, not because they're curious, but because they're trying to trip him up. Jesus schools them and flips it on their head, and they leave silenced. Everybody stuns. Then the Sadducees, a different group of religious leaders, come up, and they ask him a question about the resurrection. Jesus schools them. He kind of jujitsus them, pushes them beside. They leave silenced. Crowds are stunned. They tap back out, tag the Pharisees, send the Pharisees in for another go in the round with, another round with Jesus, and the Pharisees come back in, and that's where we're at right here. Matthew 22, starting in verse 34. Now, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, let's talk about this, a lawyer. A lawyer, in our conception, is somebody who is working with the law of the land, an expert in the law of the land. They have to have degrees showing that they understand the law of the land, and they have to be skilled at applying the law of the land to different situations, to bring equity and justice or correction in some way. In first century Judaism, those experts in the law were experts in the law of Moses, which was, for the people of Israel, the sort of governing law of the land. And so they knew the 613 laws of Moses, and they had studied how rabbis throughout generations had interpreted those laws, and they were skilled at applying those laws to different situations. And so the Pharisees picked their kind of like smartest representative. Let's send this guy, you know, he graduated magna cum laude at Harvard and all these things, and like he's like, he's our guy, he'd know this stuff inside and out, and they're gonna send him up And they're going to go to Jesus, and he's going to stump Jesus with this question. And so here's the question that this expert teacher asks Jesus. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? What's the great one? Now, again, he's not curious. They're attempting, as as more and more people are coming to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, as more and more people are calling Jesus the son of David, as more and more people are gathering around him, expecting him to be the Messiah that they've been waiting for, the Israelite leaders feel that as a massive threat to their power, Jesus clearly uh, is approaching this kingdom in a way that's going to subvert their grip on power, their control. And so they're opposing him publicly to try to discredit him in front of the crowds so the crowds would be like, oh, maybe he's not really the Messiah. He sounds like a heretic or he sounds like he doesn't know what he's talking about or all of our leaders are smarter than him. Why are we listening to Jesus when we've got all these smart Sadducees and smart Pharisees and these legal experts? Why are we listening to Jesus? That's what they're aiming for, discrediting Jesus publicly. And so this expert in the law asks him a question which is packed with a trap. It's a trap. And the reason why it's a trap is because in their culture, if Jesus were to esteem certain laws as more valuable, then he could be seen as annulling other laws. And the second he annuls or counts as uh, kind of irrelevant or not important other laws in the law of Moses, they can discredit him as a liberal, which for the Pharisees and their massive following in the first century, that would have been a way to undermine his influence on the crowds. So that's what they're trying to do. What I want to do for a second, before we kind of get into Jesus' response, is I want to kind of bring us into this idea of a Hebrew conception of law, of the, the Hebrew word Torah. The Hebrew conception of Torah isn't intended to be just kind of a list of 613 disconnected rules, 
But often the people of Israel, and in this time, had really mistaken them for that. And so for the people of Israel, their thought was, if we can kind of follow all of these rules, and we can do all the right things, at least externally, then God will see us. He'll be proud of how good we're doing. and He'll finally send the Messiah to come and deliver us from Roman oppression. If we can prove that we're righteous enough, that we're obedient enough, that we're faithful enough, that we do the right things enough. And if when we do the wrong things, we follow all the right ways of making those wrong things right through these sacrifices and these atoning rituals, then finally God will be like, okay, finally you're good enough to be my people. Finally I'll send my Messiah. My Messiah will deliver you. And so they had experts in the law there to help make sure that everybody was following all the rules. And so on top of the 613 rules, rabbis had interpreted them and created all these other traditions just to make sure nobody messed up. And so these legal experts were trying to protect that way of life so that God could see them, say, wow, you're excellent. Now I'm going to come and deliver you. Now I'm going to come and save you. But that's not the way the law was intended to be. When we think about the idea of Torah or instruction, really the whole Bible kind of unpacks this idea of Torah is God's instructions for his people. Torah is just God's instructions for his people, how to live, how to be human, how to thrive, how to be his people. And so Torah goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, where God creates humanity. And in this creation of humanity in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, he gives them his first instructions. The first laws that God gives to Adam and Eve Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. This is what I'm telling you. This is how to be human. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. He also created this garden with abundance and beauty and order all around it. And and he said, take and eat. Take of the fruit of the garden. Take of the produce. Enjoy it as a gift from your creator. That's Torah. That's instruction. He also said in that space, but do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And what he's saying is not just kind of an arbitrary rule just to make sure you're following the rules. That tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents an opportunity for humanity. Am I going to trust that God is king? Am I going to trust that his word is right, that he knows how human beings are supposed to thrive and act and relate to him and relate to one another and relate to creation? Do I trust that God knows what's right, or am I going to take the knowledge of good and evil for myself? And am I going to determine for my own life and for my family or for my society or for, for my own approach to joy and happiness, am I going to determine my own way? And we know the story that Eve and then Adam together take the fruit And they eat it and they say to God, listening to the lie of the enemy, we don't want to trust your wisdom for life. We're going to take that upon ourselves. We're going to carve out our own way. And humanity rejects Torah. They reject God's instructions for life. And they get the consequence that God had already said, that they experience separation from God, separation from God as the God of life, separation from the presence of God, separation from his, his nearness, and they're exiled from God's presence. And the rest of the Bible story is about what God is doing to restore people to his presence, to restore people to the power of his spirit, and to restore people to who he called us to be. So God didn't kick humanity to the curve and say, enough is enough, I'm done with you, destroy the world. He had mercy and grace he provided for Adam and Eve, but also he began to unveil a story 
where he was intervening in human history to bring redemption to the world. And so that happened most acutely through Abraham. He calls Abraham, through you, Abraham, and through your offspring, I will restore my presence to the world. I'll reconcile people to myself. People experience the blessing of being in my presence, under my reign, in my kingdom, experience my love, and they will learn how to show that to one another. This is what God is aiming for, and he calls Abraham. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Israel, Jacob, has 12 sons, the 12 tribes. They, to escape a famine in the land, make their way to Egypt, where they're enslaved for 400 years. In that time, they cry out to God for deliverance. God hears their cries. He has mercy, and he delivers them, not because of anything they've done, not because in Egypt they're staying faithful. They weren't. Not because in Egypt they're putting Yahweh at the center of their life. They weren't. Not because they were staying faithful and saying, I believe in the promise you made to my father Abraham. They weren't. They were hurting. They were crying out to God for deliverance. And in in his love for them, he intervened, redeemed them from slavery by the blood of a lamb, brought them through the waters of the Red Sea out into the wilderness where they were for 40 years. And that first year, he appeared to them and he once again gave Torah. So you're my people. Not because you were awesome. Not because you were righteous. Not because you cleaned yourselves up and did all the right things while you were in Egypt. You didn't. But because I love you. Because I'm on a mission to restore the world to my presence. I'm on that mission. So he calls them out. He says, as my people, here's how I want you to live. He gives 10 words of instruction. We call them the Ten Commandments. These are the sort of general stipulations. As my people, here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to live. He gives us ten general stipulations, which we still kind of see even in culture around us in different spaces. You're familiar with them. Maybe you watched a movie about them, or maybe you've heard about them here and there. These ten general stipulations, and then as the people begin to kind of live that out, he unpacks those general words of instruction in 603 additional commandments that are unpacking those 10 general stipulations in different circumstances and situations. Instructions about how to build the tabernacle. Instructions about how to do sacrificial systems. Instructions about civil and criminal justice. Instructions about how to structure your weeks and how to structure your years around festivals. All these instructions that the Lord gives, the people of Israel were not, not supposed to kind of like add them all up so that it would crush them. They're working out these kind of basic covenantal stipulations in different issues as time went on. What's interesting about the first five books of the Bible, you're like, you're losing me, Gary. I'm like, all right, here we go. What's interesting about the first five books is it's not a law book. It's not written as 613 kind of like rules over and over. They will give law and then all of a sudden there'll be a story about the Israelites breaking that law. And then they'll give some more law. And then there'll be another story about the Israelites breaking that law. And then they'll get, and the laws aren't crazy. They're things like, hey, don't boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. Three times he had to give that law. You know, like, who's doing this? You know, like, who's boiling the baby goat in its mother's milk? Like, why, why, why three times? Um, this is bizarre, right? Every time law is given... The, the, the framework of the first five books of the Bible is like, look, God gives instructions. And the people are like, yeah, we got that. And then next story is like, no, we don't. We run away. We, we are inclined away from the reign of God. We are, we are inclined to turn from him. And the sort of end result, if you're reading the, the first five books of the Bible and really the whole of the Old Testament, the end result is like, oh God, would you change our hearts? Unless you do something 
unless you do something to fundamentally change my heart within me, I am so inclined to run away from your rule, run away from your reign, try to do things my own way, my own strength, and my own wisdom. I'm fighting for joy and life and happiness according to my value systems, and I am so kind of like allergic to your reign that I keep running away unless you come, unless you change our heart, in the words of people like Jeremiah or Ezekiel, unless you give me a whole new heart. I can't, I can't. But the people of Israel were still stuck pulling up their bootstraps, trying again and again and again, and began to construct kind of this external facade of righteousness while their hearts were dead. The way Jesus will describe it is like a whitewashed tomb, clean and pretty on the outside. What's inside is dead and rotten. And so Jesus comes on the scene to address that issue. Now the rabbis, as they had these 613 rules, laws, they're trying to find ways to, to teach them that would be memorable because it's hard to remember all of it. And even as some experts would memorize it and as people in their society would, they try to find ways that can give like these summary statements that would help make sense of it. And so what this legal expert is asking Jesus is, hey, what's the greatest commandment? What's the great one? And Jesus is going to give his response to this question. Look at what he says. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Everything is working out this sense of putting God as the devoted center of your life, the center of your being. Devoted loyalty that puts him at the center of all that you are, all that you have, all that you think, all that you feel. Putting him at the center and then expressing the love that he has for humanity to others is the fundamental call that God has for humanity. All of the rest of it is sort of working that out in different cases and situations throughout culture and history. All of the rest of it is working that out. It doesn't mean, Jesus isn't saying that none of the other laws are important. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, he said that they're all important. He didn't come to abolish any of them. He didn't come to lay any of them aside. He said all of them were pointing to him. He had come to fulfill them, to bring them to where they were always headed. To him. To who he is, the way he lived, and what he came to do. Now, Jesus didn't make these two laws up. They had a really significant place in the history of God's people. The first one here comes from Deuteronomy chapter six, verse five. Deuteronomy chapter six, verse five. It's a prayer called the Shema that the people of Israel throughout history and still today would pray twice a day. Wake up in the morning and begin to pray. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Eloheka. Bekol lavavaka, ufkol nafshaka, ufkol moodaka. All right, now all together. Here we go. Ready? <laughs> and the reason why, why I do that is because the way that the way that, that commandment is framed, we, we get familiar with it, we, we memorize it, and we sometimes miss the point. Fundamentally, what that prayer is is saying, Israel, listen up. Pay attention. Obey. Hear, O Israel. Yahweh is our God and Yahweh alone. Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. And you should love Yahweh, your God, with all of your heart. 
the center of who you are, your affection, your desire, your will, your thinking center, your heart. With all of your life, your nefesh, your soul, your your whole being, all that you are with all of your strength, all that you have, all that you possess, all of your wisdom, all of your skills, all that you've acquired, all that you've gained, we put Yahweh at the center. He is the source of life. He is the source of love. He is the source of joy. He is the creator. He is the king. He reigns with wisdom. He goes at the center. It is the first commandment. It is the first commandment. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh alone. He's where we go. He's where we go for life. He's where we go for joy. He's who we worship. And loyal devotion to him is at the center of who we're called to be. Jesus doesn't finish that breath before going into the next thing that he says is right there with it. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love the neighbor as yourself. That's from Leviticus 19.18. It's unpacking how the Israelites are supposed to treat one another. Many of the rabbis would see that as a central commandment for the people of Israel. And that they had so desperately failed to obey it. Why? Because they were so disinclined to love others, especially marginalized, especially the vulnerable, especially people who disagreed, that they worked so hard to define, and who is my neighbor, really? And at the end of the day, they had narrowed in that definition to the neighbor to be basically the people that are just like me, the righteous in society, only Hebrews. The Romans surely aren't our neighbors, right? These people that are messing up and disobeying all the time, that are more acting like the pagans, they're not my neighbors. The, the, the Greeks aren't my neighbors. The Samaritans, gross, they're not my neighbors. Dogs. Love your neighbor as yourself, which basically means the people that just think like you, act like you, value things like you, behave like you, affirm you, that's my neighbor. We can love them. And they had so truncated what God had designed. So Jesus in places like Matthew 7 will say, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, which the Bible never said, hate your enemy. He said, but I say to you, love your enemy. That for Jesus, neighbor extends to anyone. To love people who disagree with you. To love people who approach life entirely different. To love people who oppose you. To love people who have hurt you. To love people who ridicule you. To love people who persecute you. Or in Jesus' case, to love people who crucify you. For Jesus, the two commandments hang together. That if you understand the God of love, if you understand who he is, And if you put him at the center of your life, then this will naturally and necessarily be manifested in the way you treat other human beings. They're together, like two sides to the same coin, the divine couplet that hang together always. All of the New Testament authors will unpack this in different epistles throughout the rest of the New Testament. For Jesus, these two hang together, and all of the commandments flow out of them. It's a powerful, powerful statement. The word, the Hebrew word, underneath love is this word ahav. And the word ahav is most throughout the Old Testament describing God's love for people. His devotion and his commitment to human beings despite our perpetual rebellion from him. And you see it over and over as you watch people turn from him again and again and again. As you read the Old Testament, you're like, no, why are you turning again? He just did all that stuff. He just did this and then you did it again. 
And then you start paying attention to the history of the world. And you're like, we did it again. And you start paying paying attention to your own heart. You're like, I did it again. Man. And God's ahav, his love for us as his people, is his devoted commitment to us. And he calls us to be a people that respond and have a devoted commitment to him. But also respond and show that same kind of love towards others. That when you get to the New Testament writers and they're writing what this conversation was almost definitely in either Hebrew, he's quoting it in Hebrew from the Hebrew Bible, uh, or maybe a conversation in Aramaic. Either way, when when the biblical writers write it in Greek, they use the word agape to describe this love, to translate this love, which in Greek language is very different than kind of romantic love. It's really different than sort of like friendly love. It's, it's different than just like affections and feelings. There are words for those. In Greek, the word agape is this active, loyal, sacrificial love. I want to read, this is a quote from uh, John Mark Comer's book, Live No Lies. He talks about the distinction between worldly love and biblical love, agape. Here's his definition for agape. It's a compassionate commitment to delight in the soul of another and to will that person's good ahead of your own, no matter the cost to yourself. Agape love, what Jesus calls us to show other people, is a compassionate commitment to delight in the soul of another, There is affection, there is delight, but it's not less. And to will that person's good ahead of your own, no matter the cost to yourself. When Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself, he's presuming your inclination to take care of yourself. Some people in our day and age, a very therapeutic time in our world, therapy is a gift, really grateful, emotions matter. But people use this to be like, see, look, first he's saying, you got to love yourself. That's fine. It's not what he's saying. He's presuming that you love yourself. And he's saying the way that you love yourself, which is like when you're hungry, you get yourself food. If you're in harm's way, you try to remove yourself from harm's way. If you have desires and passions, you tend to pursue them. The way that you do that for yourself, start thinking that way towards others. Start using and wielding your life, your resources, all that you are for the good of other people, to see what they need, what they're feeling, what they're experiencing, what their hopes are, what their needs are as a society, and to see them and to move towards them with active, sacrificial love. And that message will sell. It'll sell. Man, people love that in our culture. Like, love, yes. Teach them to love. Tell those Christians they gotta love. Love is great. The idea of love is awesome. It's awesome. Loving real people is hard. For a culture that talks about love a whole lot, our society is marked by vitriolic anger, divisions, resentment, bitterness, contempt, animosity, grudge-holding, totalizing, villainizing behavior towards other human beings that has no place and is destructive. But we keep talking about love. It's easy to talk about. It's harder to love that real person right there. Uh, Working through this made me think a a lot about this experience, um, interchange in Brothers Karamazov. Uh, Dostoevsky writes into into this story, this elder, Elder Zosima, who's this a very wise elder. And uh, in this exchange where a, a woman named Madame Koklikov comes before Elder Zosima and she's wrestling with faith. She's wrestling with faith. Not faith about whether or not God exists, but faith in the afterlife. And so she basically is, it's a kind of a long exchange, but she eventually kind of says to Elder Zosima, 
um, listen, I, I, I'm struggling to believe in life after death. And his prescription to her is like, begin to live sacrificially. Show active love to other people. And, and you will be entering into the heart of God. And those questions which have a place and those doubts which have a place will resolve as you enter into the heart of God through sacrificial active love. And she says, that's, that's fine. I, like, I kind of love people. I want to love people but it's hard for me to love real people because I'm terrified that if they don't show gratitude for what I do for them, there's no way I could keep loving them. Like, unless they kind of like say, thank you so much, really appreciate you, the second they show any kind of ingratitude, there's no way I could continue to love them. And Zosima commends her for her honesty and tells her a little story about somebody that was similar. And that's what I want to share with you for a second, this exchange that he had had with the doctor. He said, it's just the same story as a doctor once told me observed the elder. He was a man getting on in years and undoubtedly clever. He spoke as frankly as you, though in jest, in bitter jest. Here's what he said. I love humanity, but I wonder at myself. The more I love humanity in general, the less I love man in particular. In my dreams, he said, I have often come to making enthusiastic schemes for the service of humanity, and perhaps I might actually have faced crucifixion if it had been suddenly necessary. And yet I'm incapable of living in the same room with anyone, with anyone for two days together, as I know by experience. As soon as anyone is near me, his personality disturbs me. My self-complacency uh, disturbs my self-complacency and restricts my freedom. In 24 hours, I begin to hate the best of men, one because he's too long over his dinner, another because he has a cold and keeps on blowing his nose. I become hostile to people the moment they come close to me. But it has always happened that the more I detest men individually, the more ardent becomes my love for humanity. That is profound. It is easy for us to love people and care about policies that show love and compassion for people. And post on Twitter or on Facebook or on Instagram how much we love people. And to proclaim as a community how much we want to love people. Then, you, then you're interacting with your roommate right there, that person right there. And they are annoying the crap out of you. It's harder to love. Tension in a friendship where you feel wrong, wronged, misunderstood, cast aside. Harder to love. Disagreement, frustration in a marriage. Harder to love. Kids being kids in ways that aggravate your desire for comfort. Harder to love. Brothers and sisters in Christ in a church community. Harder to love. That person in your workplace that approaches life totally different and thinks you're the problem with the world. Harder to love. Harder to love. The people on the opposite side of the political aisle. Harder to love. And yet that's exactly what Jesus is calling us to. Calling us to. So that the moral of the story is try harder. <laughs> Just like the Israelites did generation after generation. How'd that go? Not so hot. The moral of the story is to let the law do what the law has always done, which is truly showing us the way that God calls us to live authoritatively showing us the way. This is the way. It's what God wants for humanity. But also revealing to us this, this brokenness within us that as much as I say I want to love, even my greatest acts of love are corrupted by mixed motives. Desires to get affection or praise from people. Desires to be appreciated. 
Even my most kind of like ardent expressions of love are still sort of a quid pro quo exchange commodity. I'll keep giving this as long as I keep getting something from you. I'll keep doing these things for you as long as, as long as I keep getting something from you and as long as it feels overall like a net positive for me, I'm in. Man, to be self-sacrificial, to, to be a, a Jesus kind of lover who could lay down his life while people rejected him, betrayed him, abandoned him, falsely accused him, condemned him, mocked him, beat him, and crucified him. To continue to love like that, that takes something from another world. That, that takes a God that would come and transform our heart. And that's what Jesus came to do. It's exactly what he came to do. He didn't give this law merely as a try harder to the people of Israel. He summed it all up and said, hey, you're trying to follow all these rules, all these things. You're trying so hard to like kind of make sure you follow all the Sabbath regulations exactly right and you follow all the tithing regulations right and you, and you follow all the holiness and the sacrificial things and you wear the right clothes at the right times and say the right prayers and, and you've just, just fundamentally, you don't love God and you don't love people and I've come to, to meet you in that space because I love you. That's what he came to do. And so he shares this passage that's stunning and we don't have time to get into the depths of it. But he twists the tables, turns the tables, and he says, now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? There, again, the crowds are proclaiming that he's the Christ. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. They're like, I know that answer. They're like, we got him. What a simple question. We had all these hard questions. He asks us, whose son is the Christ? We know. In fact, Matthew began his gospel account proving that Jesus was the offspring of David. True, they were. And Jesus says to them, his own little trick question, how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him, the Messiah, Lord? And then he quotes Psalm 110, which is the Old, Test the Old Testament passage is more quoted by New Testament authors than any other. 37 times. This is a massive passage for understanding who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so he says, how is it that David calls him Lord? Like if the Messiah is going to be an offspring of David, how is it that David about a thousand years ago called him Lord? How does that work, Pharisees? How does that work, legal ex experts? And then he quotes it. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. In the Hebrew Bible, this is David, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he says, David says, Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty, says to my Lord, a different being, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. And though the Hebrew writers and thinkers and rabbis felt that this was about the Messiah, they had never put together that somehow David's offspring is also David's Lord. How does that work? What's powerful about the passage, what Jesus is fundamentally claiming is that when you think of the Messiah that you all have been waiting for, an offspring of David that's going to be a king like David and deliver you from Roman oppression just like David delivered you from the Canaanites and the Philistines, when you think of the Messiah like that, you've missed the point altogether. I'm not less than the son of David, Jesus is saying, saying, I am more than the son of David. I am the son of God himself. And what I've come to do is not just deliver you from Roman oppression, but to deliver humanity from this fundamental issue. 
where we bought into the lie of an enemy, we rejected the reign of God, we became slaves to sin, and we couldn't fix ourselves. Under this oppressive body of flesh and these spiritual powers, we're stuck, and I came to deliver humanity from that fundamental issue. From your bent heart, I've come to meet you in that space, and because of my love, because of his love for us, even while we were still sinners, this Christ came not just to be the king, Though the king he is, he came to be the great high priest. And that's what Psalm 110 brings together, unlike any other passage in the Bible. That this coming king would also be a priest who would make a way for humanity to be reconciled to God. And so Jesus says, I am the king. I am the offspring of David. I am the lion of the tribe of Judah. But I am the son of the Lord God Almighty. And I'm the high priest who's come to make a way for humanity to be forgiven for hearts to be cleansed, for sin to be forgiven, to be reconciled to God, and to be given a new heart. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. Jesus came into this world while we were running from him, with all of the brokenness within us, with all the darkness and all the shame, with all the self-centeredness, all the corrupted motives, all the insecurities, all the ways we feign love but really do things really to promote ourselves and make people feel better about us, he saw all of it. And he didn't think, oh, gross, clean yourselves up. He entered into that space in the love for the real us, the real you. As a people, we are so inclined to try to prove still how much we have it together and try to get love from people try to get approval from people, try to get love from God. And we pretend and we stack all these accomplishments and all these works and, and we want to feel like we're lovable and we want to feel like, like we've done enough for God to love us and people to love us and we kind of, kind of try to suck out of all these people some sense of, of approval. And we create this false reality. We create this ideal version of ourselves and that's not the you that Jesus loves. Jesus loves the real you. The real you with all your insecurities, all your mixed motives, all your shame, all your arrogance, all your self-absorption, your self-centeredness, the sort of narcissistic impulses that are in many of us. He saw all of that. He saw our ability to take even good things and corrupt them into things that we get pleasure of. He saw how much even like religion itself becomes a, a way for us to feel better than others. He saw all of it, and he loved us. And while we were still sinners, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. And that reality is the most transformative reality in the world. That when you can own your own brokenness and you see sacrificial love of God the Son of God himself laying down his life for you in your brokenness. It means you can own all of it. And the more you experience love in those broken places, the more you'll experience transformation in your heart. This is the fundamental narrative behind pretty much any story that has kind of stood the test of time. Disney has been telling this over and over and over again. From Frozen to Bing Bong, you know, the idea of sacrificial love is written in every powerful, enduring story from over and over and over again, when you just look at culture and you look at the idea of sacrificial love and the effect of sacrificial love, there's a reason why those stories resonate deeply within us. There's a reason why they do and there's a re reason why it's written into all of these stories. It's because it, you're made to experience it. You're made to be a person seen by the creator of the universe 
and loved. And when you experience that love, it is healing and transformative. And that's what Jesus came to do, to lay down his life, to pay the penalty for our brokenness, to forgive us, wash us, and cleanse us. And then, through the power of his Holy Spirit within us, to empower us to be people that are growing in that kind of love. And the way that we grow, the way that we grow in love, isn't merely like try harder. It is to continue to own, like Madame Koklikov, how hard it is. How, how fractured my heart is, how broken, and then in that space to receive God's love. And the more we receive his love for the real us, the more we begin to taste the beauty of that kind of love, the more we actually experience the power of his spirit within us to show that kind of love to other people, even people that disagree with us, even people that wrong us, even people that harm us, even people on the other side of the aisle than you, in the room and in politics. To love other people is who God's called us to be and what Jesus came to do fundamentally to redeem humanity and to transform our hearts to be people who reflect his love back to him and to the world around us. Let's pray that God would do that among us. Jesus, we come right now and we ask for your mercy and your help that you'd help us right now to be the kind of people that would so experience the depth of your love for the real us. While we feel maybe some in this room, this compulsion to defend ourselves, to defend how right we feel, how good we feel, how righteous we feel, would you help your love free us to be people that can acknowledge even within that some of the darkness within us? And I imagine many others that feel like, how could he ever love me? Feel the brokenness, feel the pain. Feel the darkness within. Feel the sin. Feel the shame. God, would you help all of us, wherever we're coming from, to understand that while we are still broken, you loved us. You came into this world and you died for us to forgive, to wash, to cleanse, to reconcile. Would you give us a a deeper grasp of those realities, not just in our mind, but in the depth of our soul, that we could be a people that love you in response because of your love for us, but also that show your love to those around us and to the world and that the world would know we are your disciples by the way we love one another. Support your spirit on us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.